Well, I want us to begin this evening by considering a subject oddly close to my heart, and it's that of the uh, Channel 4 programme, Grand Designs. Uh, I don't know if there are any Grand Designs fans in here. It's been running for over 20 years now, I think. I think it's kind of perfect winter, Monday evening, cosy television. You cosy up with a cup of tea and a biscuit and an episode of Grand Designs. If you're not familiar, let me bring you up to speed. The basic premise is that the host, Kevin McLeod, he's a designer and he meets with people who are designing and building their own home. Now, that doesn't sound too exciting, but it gets much better because it's not just any old home, it's a grand design. It's not your standard two up, two down. Every week there's some sort of premise, some sort of weird hook that they're not just building a home, they're converting an old bomb shelter into a home, or they're suspending their home 20 feet off the edge of a cliff, or in an episode I watched a few weeks ago, they're bending timber with steam into weird shapes and building a house in the woods adjoining an old woodsman's cottage. It's always something like that. And a few years ago, I got really into grand designs because I lived with three final year architecture students. And so as you can imagine, this is basically homework for them, getting all these grand ideas from watching the show. And when you watch a lot of episodes back to back, you start to notice some recurring themes. So often an episode of grand designs will start with the subjects of the program explaining their vision for how they're going to convert this watermill into a mansion. And they'll show you this 3D mock-up of what the house is going to look like in all its glory. But then as the episode goes on, the reality very rarely matches up to the plan. And often we find that even by the very end of the episode, on the final visit to the property, it's not this resplendent, gorgeous mansion at all. Instead, we find the designers over budget and behind schedule, running out of money and living in a caravan on site and wondering if the whole thing was worth the hassle. And all that excitement about their prospective dream home is all given way to disappointment and doubt when they realise just how big a job they've got themselves in for. Why am I telling you about Grand Designs? Well, I do think more people should watch it. It is great television. But primarily I'm telling you about it because if you remember back to last week, we're in the book of Haggai and the people are in the middle of their own Grand Design project. Their project to build back God's house to build back the temple in Jerusalem. And this evening, last week we looked at the first prophecy in the book of Haggai. This evening we turn to the second prophecy of Haggai and we see that the tone here is very different from the first one. See, last week we saw God rebuking his people who were cold and apathetic and lazy in their work. And he was drawing them to consider their ways to wake up and to take action. But here we find God's people feeling overwhelmed, feeling discouraged as they realize the sheer magnitude of the task at hand. Their build back the temple project is causing them no end of anxiety and grief. And that's why in his words delivered to the people through Haggai this week, we find that the Lord is much more gentle. He's much more encouraging as he encourages people to keep going. So last week we saw that one of the big messages in Haggai is that God himself ultimately is the master craftsman. He is the one who encourages his people here that ultimately what counts isn't their performance, but his promises. That's what the Lord wants his people to end up in at the end of this prophecy. And it's how we want to leave this evening, not trusting in our own performance, but trusting in God's 
promises. And we'll look at this under three headings. The people build back worse. God is at work. And God builds back better. First of all, the people build back worse. But don't despair. That's what we read. Verses 1 to 3. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not look as nothing? Now, if we just note the time marker here, we're still in the second year of Darius the king, like in chapter 1, but it's now the 21st day of the seventh month. So it's about one month after the end of the first chapter. Now that means a couple of things. First of all, that not much progress must have been made in the last month, in the last few weeks. If you ever tried to build a house yourself, you can imagine how little progress would have been made in only a few weeks' time. Remember, at the end of chapter one, God's house is in ruins. So a few weeks on, his people, they're still not looking at a particularly impressive temple building. But the seventh month, It's also significant because it's festival time in Jerusalem. This is the time of the year where they celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. That's a time when God's people are encouraged to look back, to look back at God's saving work in the past and rejoice, and then to look forward to the time when God says he will fulfill ultimately the promises he's made to them. That's what the Feast of Booths was meant to to get them to do look back rejoice look forward and be confident but the picture we get here of these people is that they're stuck in the first part they're looking back but instead of looking back on god's redeeming work in the past through their history what they're doing is they're looking back on how impressive the temple used to be and they're thinking how on earth do we get from ruins to that And understandably, pages and pages and pages of the Old Testament are devoted to how ornate and impressive the temple should look like. It should be imposing and resplendent. That's what it looked like in the days of Solomon. And so at the very beginning of their own Grand Designs project, reading what the temple should have looked like in the scriptures in places like 1 Kings 6 to 9, it's like they're looking at this really detailed 3D model of what the temple could be, arguably should be. And then as they look at the resources they have available and the manpower they have on offer and the ruins in front of them, understandably they think, well, we're in trouble. There's no way we can turn this into that. And there are probably some of the older people among them who actually saw the temple in all its splendor too. And actually... These people going all about, well, you know, back in my day, the temple looked like this and that. It's making the younger generations feel a bit miserable about themselves. So I think we can see why the people are definitely tempted here to just down tools and to give up. That's why in verse 3, the Lord is asking this question. He knows everyone is thinking that this is a hard project. He's not mocking them. When he says, does this not look like nothing in your eyes? He's not doing that to mock or to chide. He's just bringing the attitude that they all have in their hearts out into the open so that he can address it. And as he does so for the people in Haggai's day, 
It's worth us taking a moment to pause and reflect a bit on whether we can recognise this tendency amongst ourselves. I wonder if any of this rings a bell. Uh, One of the things that really caught me off guard during lockdown, I wasn't expecting it at all, is that in the winter of 2021, I turned 30. Uh, I didn't think that was going to happen to me. It all seemed like such a a distant, faraway age. But lo and behold, February a year ago, I turned 30. Now, I don't know if it was just because it was pandemic times and my 30th birthday in lockdown wasn't much of an event. But as 30 closed in, I went through this really weird, very early midlife crisis where I started to feel really nostalgic for my 20s, especially my early 20s, living in Newcastle just after university and thinking, wow, life was so much easier back then with with no responsibilities and lots of fun and just lots of free time to enjoy life. The really sad thing is I only met Jodie when I was 27, so you can imagine it wasn't really great for her to hear I was pining for my early 20s. But I guess at some time or another, we're all prone to that kind of thinking. To illustrate this, I wonder wonder what jumps to mind when I ask you to consider the glory days. What does that phrase bring to mind, the glory days? Last week in here, somebody commented on my bright green water bottle. I can assure you that's not uh, any comment on football allegiances. But for some, I'm sure, the glory days instantly brings up images of when Rangers were winning the league every year and Celtic couldn't get a look in. Or maybe glory days is as simple as, well, the glory days of 2019 in a pre-pandemic, pre-cost-of-living crisis world. We all probably have a different answer to that thing. What do we think of when we think of the glory days? But I imagine that no matter what we're thinking of, most of us are thinking of something that happened in the past. Most of us think that glory days exclusively lie behind us. In some bygone era, days which we would just love to reclaim. And sadly, I think that's an attitude which can creep into church life as well. This attitude which seems to say things were so much better for God's people in Scotland back in the good old days, the glory days. The days when we had three services every Sunday and they were all full. The days when the Sunday school was massive. The days when society as a whole was just a bit more religious. I think when we we think like that, we can even go one step further. And we can think that if we want to see God's church thrive again, then what we really need to do is to recreate the same conditions in which it thrived in the past. And so we make a much bigger deal than we need to about dress codes and service times and songs and things which are very important to think about, but we can make them all important by thinking that we'll invite more of God's favour if we do things like we did them back then. Nostalgia is dangerous in the Christian life and Haggai is drawing our attention to just how dangerous it can be. Because friends, comparing the Christian life today to perceptions of how grand it was in the past can be really discouraging. And actually, at its worst, doing it can even make us doubt that God is still at work today. That brings us to our second point. You see, It's not looking back that's wrong in and of itself. We've seen that already. It's what you look back on. So the people should look back and see that God is at work and therefore be strong. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again. 
Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I've watched interviews of footballers who used to play under the great Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, to give him his full title, when he's a Manchester United manager. And one of the things they say about Fergie is that he was such an intuitive manager that he knew exactly how to get the best performances out of each individual player. So someone like Wayne Rooney, he knew that to get the best out of him at halftime, even if he'd been playing really well, he'd give him a real telling off, the dreaded hairdryer treatment, shouting at him and telling him to do better. And he knew that would get an even better performance in the second half. But then for other people, usually the Scottish guys like Darren Fletcher, even if he played really badly, he knew that the best way to help was to put a little gentle arm on the shoulder, give him some encouragement, maybe have him on for Sunday lunch, and just treat him really nicely, and that would get a better performance out of him. Well, the Lord seems to know exactly what and how Israel need to hear from him. Last week, he didn't shy away from being really direct and calling out their lethargy and their sin. But now, he sees a people who are feeling weak, feeling discouraged. And we find that his tone is much more gentle and reassuring. Much more Darren Fletcher than Wayne Rooney, if you will. So he tells them to be strong. As in, don't be downcast. Don't lose heart. Don't allow comparisons with the so-called good old days to put you off the work that I have brought you to in the here and now. And that leads on to the command, work, work for I am with you. That's a promise that we heard at the end of last week and we hear it again this evening. I am with you, says the Lord. To this weary and worried people looking back to the past and feeling like they fall short, The Lord very gently reassures them that the thing that matters is not their means or their ability or their manpower. It's his presence with them. And maybe that's particularly reassuring for them because they could be thinking that their fairly modest lot in life is a sign that God has forgotten about them. If that's true, and it is true that this is a bit of a low point in the history of God's people, Remember, they've just come back from exile precisely because they had abandoned God and he allowed them to be taken into captivity in judgment. So if it's easy for us to to even very subtly think, well, maybe God isn't with us anymore. Maybe God isn't adding his blessing to the work we're doing anymore because church now doesn't look like church looked in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or however far back we go. If that's easy for us, imagine how much easier it might have been for the people in Haggai's day as they have actively experienced God's judgment coming on them in exile and the withholding of his covenant blessings like we saw last week. The Lord can see just how tempted they must feel to think that he's abandoned them and that serving him isn't worth it. And to drive home this point, he gives them an example of how they should view their past. He, in spite of the obvious dark days that they're going through, he gives them an assurance that he hasn't abandoned them. He's still with them and they have everything 
they need in the here and now. And so they should look to their past and see how it's a past in which he has dealt kindly with them. A past, in verse 5, in which he has covenanted with them. In other words, making sure and certain promises, lasting commitment that he has sworn by his very self, right from the time in their history, long ago, when he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. This, this is how Israel should look back to their past. Not as a catalogue of great human achievements, which leaves them feeling inadequate, but looking back at one long story of God's faithfulness. A faithfulness he has promised them and which he has demonstrated to them time and time and time again and which ought to give them confidence to be strong in the here and now. The thing that made Israel's past so amazing was not their efforts. It wasn't their really clever kings. It wasn't their well-put-together temple. It was God's covenant faithfulness, which endures into their present situation. So the God who miraculously brought Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land, the God who kept his steadfast commitment to them through the darkest days of the judges and the highest points of the best of their kings, the God who's been faithful to them through the low point of the exile and the relief of return to the promised land, this is the God who is in their midst, remaining steadfast in his love to them even today. So they should work. They should work knowing that it is this God who brings about his purposes. The people here can't achieve the glories of the past, and they don't have to. God isn't telling them to get busy trying to make Israel great again. No, what matters here is that they allow knowledge of God's faithfulness to them in the past to spur them on in their faithfulness to him in the present day as they do the work that he has set before them. And it's the same for us this evening. As we said, the issue with nostalgia in the Christian life is that it can make us think that somehow God's best days are behind him, like some sort of tennis player nearing retirement like he's not quite got as many good things in him as he used to it's so not true the message from Haggai too is that if we must look back on anything we ought to look back at God's saving work his saving work for all of us as we look back to the cross where we see once and for all just how steadfast God really is in his commitment to his people we look back to the Lord Jesus, to Emmanuel, God with us, and we hear this same promise, the promise that he made to his people on Haggai's day, and he makes to us this evening, fear not, for I am with you. Even when things look bleak for God's people, we have this assurance that he is with us. He is working still. And so the question for us is how will we allow that to spur us on in our faithfulness in the here and now? You might remember some of the things that we said last week in our studies in Haggai. Some of the things like speaking the truth in love to one another, sharing the gospel with our communities, praying for more workers for the harvest field, giving to the work of ministry, and how we saw then that God is honoured through and at work in all of these very simple things, no matter what the outcome may look like, no matter how many people are gathered on a Sunday to hear them, 
No matter how many politicians lobby for unbiblical laws or how many gospel preachers are silenced and arrested and thrown out, thrown into prison. We're encouraged to keep going. Not because we might see a return to what it was like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. No, we're encouraged to keep going because God is with us still today. God is building his church today. And God is glorified as his people build with him. So we can look back and rejoice in God's faithfulness. And we can look forward with confidence that he himself will bring his work to completion. And that's our final point this evening. God builds back better, so be confident. We read again verses 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the Lord has steered the people away from looking back to this rose-tinted past. He's helped them to look back instead to his faithfulness. And now he draws them to look forward to a certain future. The people are to work in the full confidence that this is the work that he himself is doing. So note what it is that God says he will do in a little while. It's not their present reality. Their current circumstances don't look like it. But God is at work to bring about three things. First, he is establishing a people from every nation. That's the sense of shake being used here. The earth shook at Mount Sinai as God established his people Israel. God is saying here he will shake it again as he establishes a people from all nations. The desired ones, the treasures of all nations will come. Now, apparently the Hebrew of will come here is in the plural. So this is probably a picture of people from all nations coming to the temple to worship God. That's why all nations is repeated in verses 6 to 7. So God is establishing a people from all nations of the earth. That's the first thing he's doing. Second, God himself will finish the work of making a glorious temple. Now, we said last week that there are a few ways in which we see the temple language being fulfilled in the New Testament. We see that God's people are described as being built together into a temple. But also, Jesus himself is described as the temple. We know, don't we, that the bricks and mortar temple is made redundant by the coming of Jesus. More specifically, through his death and resurrection. If you remember at Jesus' crucifixion, the temple of the curtain is torn in two. The cross means that people can meet with God, not just in a building, but through his son. When Jesus dies, the earth shakes and the great no entry sign in the temple is removed as people are allowed access to God through his son. And again, as we've seen in Haggai already, God's people in the New Testament, they are described as the temple too. So as well as this ultimate work of establishing his temple in the person of the Lord Jesus, God is still at work glorifying himself today as his people are built up. Like we saw before, built up spiritually 
as the gospel advances built up numerically as, people, as the uh, church grows. And finally, notice the, the last aspect of God's work here, the third thing. He establishes lasting peace. Peace with God, which comes through Christ, which we enjoy now. And peace with each other, which now we see in part, and will see fulfilled perfectly one day when the Lord comes again. And his people gather in the great assembly around the throne. So as we move towards a close in this part of the book of Haggai, Let's be encouraged that these promises are being fulfilled even today. The thing about nostalgia is that it's always a bit of a lie. Easy as it is to look back to the dim distant days of 2019 and think that that was a, that was a perfect life in this pre-COVID world that we had. We know that's not true. Even before COVID, life had its struggles and stresses. And in the same way, when we look back to the so-called good old days of the church, these things may have presented themselves differently, but no matter how far back in time we go, reminiscing about church life, we'll find that there was always apathy. There was always human sin getting in the way of unity. There were always people filling the pews out of upbringing or habit rather than commitment to God and love for his people. Things were never perfect in the good old days. The good old days were never quite so good as we tend to think they were now. And so as we get about the business of working like God has commanded us today, we mustn't look back to the wrong thing. We have to allow both our right looking back and our looking forward to give us great confidence that God himself is at work among us today. We can look back to when we've seen God shake the earth and know that his work of establishing a people from every nation is happening now. It's happening even this evening as the gospel is being preached all over the world. And we can look back and see that the true glory has come back to the temple, not through bricks and mortar, but through the person and work of Jesus. But now we live in the age when this temple is being built as the church grows. And as we think of those things, we can then look forward with complete confidence that God will bring all of this work to completion. A few months ago in St Andrews, I attended the funeral of an elderly member of our congregation. It was a sad day, as you can imagine. And yet it was also a strangely uplifting day. Uh, the son of this dear woman is a minister. and He led the funeral service. And he began by saying, we're full of joy today. Because mum's not here. She's gone to be with Jesus. And so while we're sad, we're full of resurrection hope. Because for the Christian, our best days are always ahead of us. That was the line that really jumped out to me. What a wonderful thing. What a staggering thing to be able to say at your own mother's funeral. For the Christian, our best days are always ahead of us. Because I think what Haggai reminds us of here is that the real glory days in the Bible always, ultimately, make us look forward and not back. The glory days, according to the Bible, are the days when we will be with Jesus, praising God forever in eternity. 
Well, I can think of no better motivation for being involved in God's building project than to picture the people in Shawpost, the people in St Andrews, the people around us, wherever we find ourselves in life, who might join us worshipping one day around God's throne room in eternity because we stepped out in faith and shared the gospel with them. Because we walk with them through the highs and lows of the Christian life. Because we encourage them with the gospel when they were flagging. Because we modelled love for the Lord Jesus to them as they sought to live for him as well. You can think of no finer motivation than to picture the saints that he will gather with us in glory on those last on that last day. So, in closing, let's not look back and be discouraged. If we must look back on anything, let's look back to the cross and see with confidence God's commitment to winning for himself a people from every nation. Let's look back and see his unwavering faithfulness to weak and needy sinners like you and like me and have confidence that God has not, God will not abandon us. Let's also look to the future as well. Let's look to the day when God will once and for all draw to himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to know his perfect peace and rest in his glory forever. As we do all that, let's keep working in the here and now with joy, knowing that those so-called glory days, as we tend to think of them in the past, they're not coming back. But God himself is at work, even through us, to bring about the true glory days that he has promised. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? God, Father, we confess that we're so prone to nostalgia. We're so prone to thinking that our best days and even your best days have uh, lain in the past. So we pray that you would correct this thinking in us. We pray you would help us to look back on your saving work, your faithfulness in the lives of all of us and supremely your faithfulness in sending your son, the Lord Jesus. Your faithfulness in preserving your church through many, many generations. And we pray you would help us as well to look forward to the day where you will bring about the completion of your great work. And we pray that in these things, by your Holy Spirit, would you enable us to keep working and building up your people and building your house with joy and with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the work that you are doing and for your glory. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.